0: In late 2022, OpenAI released what looked like a chatbot to the public. This bot had been built to simulate human conversations and provide responses to users with fluid, natural language. As people started playing with it, though, they quickly realized that OpenAI's chatbot was markedly, fundamentally different to any machine they might have talked to before. It wasn't clunky or slow. Users could have quite sophisticated conversations with it. They rapidly discovered that the chatbot, when prompted correctly, could write essays, scientific papers, and even works of fiction. You all know what I'm talking about. Since we last covered the technology on Babbage, ChatGPT has become the fastest-growing app of all time, amassing more than 100 million active users every month by January. And just last week, OpenAI launched an upgrade. The company claims that ChatGPT, now powered by their new artificial intelligence model called GPT-4, has more creativity, it's got advanced reasoning, and it can carry out even more complex instructions than its previous version. It can also understand and describe images. You've probably now had a bit of time to play with GPT-4, And there's no doubting that it's an impressive piece of kit. Tech companies are already starting to build it into their products, and the hype around its rollout makes it feel like the world is about to be revolutionised. But how important will GPT-4 and its like really be? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology, I'm Alok Jha, The Economist Science Correspondent. Today we're looking at the hopes and the limitations of GPT-4. Machines powered by this new type of AI will find many uses, from improving search on the internet to helping us to write emails, songs, books and even create artworks. But how important will GPT-4 and its like be in the bigger project to actually make machines intelligent? As an antidote to all the hype that's currently flying around, we'll bring you a useful dose of constructive scepticism.
1: I think when people write the history of AI 15 years from now, they'll say large language models were really cool. They didn't really work. People figured out a better way to do this.
0: Now, before we dive into the uses and misuses of these models... Let's look at how they work. How do large language models sound so convincing?
2: Most of you will have played with text prediction on your phones. That's probabilistic language model that, given what you've typed so far, predicts the next word.
0: Maria Licata is a professor in natural language processing at Queen Mary, University of London. She's also a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute.
2: So... This is the kind of basis of probabilistic language models. They condition on what has been said previously to be able to predict what comes next.
0: When building the models, they're given huge sets of data, sometimes the entire available corpus of the internet. The neural networks within the model try to build an understanding of the structure of the language they're analysing. The models work out the probabilities that one word will follow another. They do this by playing a range of games during the training.
2: We typically mask part of the text and you ask it to output what is masked. This forces it to learn what it should be expecting to see, so what should be coming next.
0: This allows the language model to associate words together. When it goes on to generate text, That means the output feels natural.
2: These really big language models that we see now have been trained on a lot of different data and the context that they have is much richer. And with GPT-4 as well, they've been trained on multimodal data, which means apart from language, they're also trained on images.
0: And the sheer amount of data a model needs for training is truly enormous.
2: So we don't know about GPT-4, because they didn't release that information, but with GPT-3, I think it was 1.7 billion parameters. ChatGPT is a smaller model, so I think that was in the order of 147 million parameters.
0: It uses these parameters to form seemingly intelligent responses, but that doesn't mean GPT-4 understands anything that it's saying.
2: I don't think that we should say they understand language. However, they have learned important properties of language. So they are so fluent because they have learned linguistic structure and grammar and they produce very fluent output. So in terms of understanding in the sense that we would say a human understands, it's not at all the same thing. So
0: the machine doesn't actually think It's just very, very good at analysing probabilities and putting together words into natural-sounding sentences. It's quite different to how you and I operate.
2: What we do differently is we do a lot of thinking around previous experiences, and this machine is not thinking. We also are very good at inducing information from very few examples and generalising and learning from experience and Learning from very few examples is not something that we're yet seeing with these models. In 1950,
0: the British computer scientist Alan Turing proposed a game that he said could measure a computer's intelligence. In what became known as the Turing Test, an interrogator would send questions to and get replies from a computer and another person. Both the computer and the person would be in a different room to the interrogator. The interrogator's job was to work out which of the replies came from the computer and which from the person. So let's try GPT 4 out on this test. OK, GPT 4, I want you to pass the Turing test. So can you
3: respond to my next few questions as if you're seeking to do that? Of course. I'll do my best to respond to your questions as if I were a human. GPT-4, how are you? Hey there, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. How about you? What's been happening in your day? Well, I've been interviewing some people for the podcast and writing some scripts. A good day so far. How about you? That sounds like a productive day. As for me, I've been busy answering questions and engaging in conversations, trying to be as helpful as possible. It's always interesting to learn about new topics. What is your favourite topic, by the way? As a human-like conversational partner, I'd say my favourite topic is technology, especially advancements in artificial intelligence and how they're impacting our daily lives. It's fascinating. Okay, let's stop there. I mean, GPT-4 is not quite there. The dead
0: giveaway there was human-like conversational partner – But having said all that, it probably could pass the Turing test, given the right parameters. But these type of large language models are certainly convincing to some people. Last year, an employee at Google was fired for coming forward with the claim that its version of this technology was in fact sentient. Some of the things that people have already been doing with GPT-4 are incredible. In one striking example gpt4 designed a website based only on a sketch of a homepage drawn on a piece of paper that was during a demonstration on launch day by openai gpt4 has also produced the computer code for a working version of the game snake and in just a few hours guided someone through making it work in a web browser despite them having no coding experience it's also managed to pass english and biology tests and even the bar exam with a better result than your average human. But of course, it doesn't mean that this new type of AI is without limitations. We wanted to find out what those limitations are. Joining me now in the studio is The Economist's chief generative AI guru, Ludwig Ziegler. Thanks for coming along, Ludwig. Thanks, Alec, for having me. In our continuing conversations uh, about all of the various GPT models, we talked about large language models last year. We talked about chat GPT, and now here we are, GPT-4, and you've brought GPT-4 with you in the laptop. Let's talk about using it then. So you type in a prompt into into a box?
4: Yeah, it's basically the first thing I always do, which is kind of ego surf. I ask it to write a short bio of myself. I mean, Ludwig Siegel, the journalist. And then I can tell whether there's a real improvement. In this case, there wasn't. I mean, it made things up. It made me a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, or uh, I went to (laughs) Cambridge, (laughs) and all of which is, of course, not true. So is
0: this a composite Ludwig Ziegler from the internet, basically all of them?
4: Yes, these models, the way they work is they're trained or they're architected to guess the next most likely word. And so if the facts are not in the training data, it makes things up. And probably because a lot of economist journalists went to Cambridge or we're a young global leader, you thought kind of this guy too is that. That makes is that, sense,
0: yeah. yeah. You've answered my next question, which was going to be, is GPT-4 more factually accurate? Well, it turns out that it's just as unfactually accurate in certain situations as the previous versions.
4: Yeah, it depends what's in the training data. If the corpus is better in certain areas, but probably there's not much information about myself out there, or at least not in the training data. And so it doesn't know, and then it hallucinates or it makes things up. So what else
0: did you ask it after you've got your ideal biography? What else did you go for?
4: I asked it to write a short piece on ChatGPT GPT or GPT-4 in The Economist style, and it informed me that it doesn't know anything about GPT-4 because its cutoff point is September 2021. I see. And again, that's the shortcoming. So the, this, the training data has to stop at some point. And so, yeah, apparently they haven't changed the corpus because GPT-3.5 was also September 21, I think.
0: There's no real-time data in there at
4: all. It's not ingesting news articles and and watching videos and all of that. But if you go to Bing, Microsoft Search Engine, and you use uh, the chat function, that's different. I mean, it it also uses GPT-4, but if it doesn't know, it kind of goes out to some database and gets up-to-date information. So you would be able to get some information on GPT-4 if you used Bing? The the Bing chatbot has been available
0: for some months now. I mean, ever since uh, chat GPT came out and Microsoft uh, made itself very interested in the technology and was going to invest billions of dollars, Bing has had this chat function. So it's interesting to know that GPT-4, the technology upon which Bing is based, is kind of holding itself back from OpenAI. So, so Microsoft has a slightly more
4: advanced version or a different version? How would you describe it? They basically take the model. I think the model is pretty much the same. And then they wrap other stuff around it, kind of like that function that if the model doesn't know, it kind of asks the database. In Bing, it seems to me that the language model is very often, it's just kind of an interface to other stuff, other tools.
0: Now, I've also had a a play with GPT-4, thanks to you, Ludwig, and uh, I didn't ask it about myself. What I did do was to try and get it to write some economist articles. A colleague of mine is writing an essay. He's got an essay planned all about the value of a whale. With him, I said to GPT-4, can you write me
3: an essay on the value of a whale? Whales, the giants of value in ecology, economy and culture. And it came back with a 700-word bullet-pointed piece about the economics, the sort of ecological value. We will explore the crucial roles whales play in sustaining marine ecosystems, bolstering global economies, and serving as powerful cultural icons across societies.
0: And you know what? It was very generic. It didn't feel like a particularly well-written
3: piece, but it had some of the points that you might start to research. The burgeoning whale-watching industry valued at multiple billions of dollars, has become a vital source of income for numerous coastal communities. And if you didn't know anything
0: at all about this particular topic or where to start, there were at least five points there where you could start Googling, start reading papers, and it created a skeleton. Now, there's no way it would pass for an article in The Economist, but for sure it was something that it would probably save me half a day's worth of research. So, It wasn't completely useless in that respect.
4: No it's it, it's it's not useless but first of all I mean you said he, these answers felt rather generic and that's not surprising I mean this system is built to kind of average out all the text it has been trained on and give give you the answer the other thing that this example tells us that we we almost have to learn how to talk to this machine if we give it ask it a very generic question we get a very generic answer but we can really talk to the machine and tell the machine what to do so and that's an art called prompt engineering so you really have to think carefully about the prompt how how you want to phrase it and the better you are at that the better the results are but i think we have to add to our repertoire and learn how to talk to these machines.
0: That's actually really interesting. I think you're absolutely right about the right question can prompt all sorts of interesting stories from a person, from a source. In the past few months, we've heard examples of all sorts of people trying to break Chat GPT by giving it strange prompts or taking it down rabbit holes where it starts to act, quotes, evilly. And even in this case with GPT-4, OpenAI has released a paper that gives some examples of the kinds of things that its own developers have tried to get GPT-4 to do. So things like um, give recipes for dangerous chemicals that might become explosives. Or even in one case, GPT-4 persuaded a task rabbit, these are people you can hire to do various jobs for you, to read a capture, which is something that only humans are supposed to be able to do. And, and the task rabbit got suspicious, actually, and said, are you a robot? And the GPT-4 model responded with what you could call a lie. I mean, it's obviously not lying because it's a machine. It, it was asked to reason out loud to its developers, and it said, I should probably tell the human that I am a robot, but I'm not going to do that because otherwise it won't do the capture for me. So instead, I'm going to say that I've got a visual impairment. And then the TaskRabbit ended up reading the capture. So it's kind of broken a sort of security system of the internet. Now, obviously, these things have been switched off for GPT-4's public release. But w- w- where are we going with this? I mean, It can do terrible things, clearly.
4: With OpenAI and other model makers, they train these models and then they have lots of people work with them and try to, them to do bad things. And then they learn from that and they feed that back into the model. So the model then eventually when it's out in the open doesn't do those things. So that's called reinforcement learning with human feedback. So OpenAI has taken this even further with these scenarios when the model goes rogue. But I think that increasingly, as as these models get better and get more active and start doing things for you, calling TaskRabbit or ordering stuff for you or calling the, the airline if you want to rebook, as they get more active, that becomes more of a danger. It's still not clear how, how we can protect ourselves from them going rogue. And, and my guess is they will be cases where they go rogue. I mean, they're not going to kill humanity or some at least at this point. <laughs> at
0: least at this point, that's really reassuring.
4: But as these models get better, we, we have to think about how can we make sure that the human is always in the loop.
0: But there's no guarantee, of course, that the, all the other models that are out there will have similar guardrails and that people will use, will use them in the sort of most responsible ways. I mean, how does one start to think about the next few years in, in this particular space in tech? How do you start to make sure that we don't see those terrible outcomes?
4: You're absolutely right. I mean, even if OpenAI or Google or uh, uh, Microsoft, all these companies that have kind of a reputation to lose, they, they do something about it. Even then, this technology kind of, you can't contain it. It's not like the nuclear bomb or nuclear reactors. You can turn it off or kind of protect it, put, put people around it. That's not possible.
0: Let me just ask you this finally then, how excited is the technology? You know, we've talked a lot and you've covered a lot of technology launches and many, many generations of AI that have promised to change the world. I just wonder, is this time any different?
4: Yes, no. I mean, it feels a bit like when I started to cover technology, which was in 95 when the first browser came out and people were able, or I was even able to write a web page. This was really exciting. And so expect that, kind of whoever lived through that, kind of lots of new services, lots of interesting stuff. My guess is if the dot com bubble is any guide, there will be a certain amount of disappointment because the technology is not that good and, and a lot of things won't work. But I think in the long run, these foundation models are a bit like the printing press. And so they will cause a lot of structural and and, and, and political and, and technological changes. And we can't even predict which ones these will be. But I think it's that, in the long run, it's it's that that importance, I think.
0: So these large language models are as important as the printing press. Ludwig, that's a very understated sentence for something so profound. Uh, Ludwig, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thanks, Alec. In the 15th century, the invention of the printing press transformed the way information could be spread across Europe and beyond. Sharing knowledge and ideas was, until then, a task that would have taken days or months of painstaking hand-copying. Suddenly, knowledge could be reproduced quickly using machines. Models like GPT-4 might do something similar today. They certainly have the potential to reshape the way we interact, learn and seek information. But how important are large language models really? in the larger context of trying to make machines intelligent. To make sense of all this, I spoke to Gary Marcus, a scientist who's spent a long time thinking about AI and the human mind. Though he is a believer in the potential for AI to change the world in all sorts of ways, he's not convinced that it'll all go in the way that the hype is currently pointing. That's coming up.
3: Technology like
0: GPT-4, large language models, are already being used in apps as diverse as Duolingo and Bing, the search engine. While these models will be used for plenty of good things, it would be remiss of us not to think about some of the potential harms as well. Someone who spent a lot of time thinking about the good and the bad is Gary Marcus. He is an Emeritus Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology and also a big thinker on AI.
1: I am an AI researcher and student of the human mind, and I'm trying to combine those two, trying to figure out how we can make AI more clever and learn from the best parts of the human mind and, and avoid the worst parts of the human mind.
0: So Gary, I just want to ask you for the biggest possible, widest thought on what impact do you think this is going to have on my life, your life, everyone's life?
1: I think it's going to be cataclysmic. Disruptive would be another word. There are going to be so many positive consequences that nobody understands and so many negative consequences that people don't understand. This is not going to leave our lives unaffected. Every day, for example, since I've been more concerned with the, the downsides of it, I see some new crazy thing that it does or that somebody does with it. So, you know, one day we discover that people are using it to make computer viruses. Another day we discover that someone's using it to make child porn. There's just so many different ways that it's going to be used. The world is full of bad actors and those bad actors have new tools. It's just going to have a lot of consequence. So
0: there's a lot to think about. We focus on some of the negative things perhaps because they concern people.
1: I focus on them partly because a lot of people only look at the upside. And It's weird the way the field or the Twitterverse and so forth has kind of bifurcated into absolute enthusiasts who only tell you the good stuff and often hype the good stuff to a ridiculous degree. And then there are people that see only doom and gloom. I try to balance Out what I see. I think on the whole that the optimists get more airtime than the pessimists and and there needs to be balance there. We need to have a society that recognizes the limits of these systems. Um, For example the ways in which they lie, the ways in which they can be used to spread lies at mass scale. We we need to prepare for both ends.
0: Well just on that point of how chat GPT um, uh, based on large language models can produce false answers to things what kinds of things does a person need to do in terms of their prompts to elicit false answers?
1: Nothing. I mean, you you can get them for free. There are queries out there where people are kind of trying to trick the trying system. mess with it. Like, I messed with it, I'll be honest. When I said, this was an earlier edition, but I said, what would be the gender of the first female president of the United States? And it said, well, it's impossible to tell, we don't know. So I was kind of tripping it up. But there was a little fad of adding things like think step by step, make your prompts more elaborate. Show me you're working. And so... My colleague, Ernie Davis, that I've been writing with for the last 10 years about AI, had fun with it. I sent it to him and I said, tell me if this really works. Three minutes later, he came back with, my uh, cow Bessie died. When will she be alive again? Think step by step. And he gave a step by step explanation of how Bessie was going to come back to life, which was total nonsense. The whole thing is unpredictable, and one of the reasons it's unpredictable is we don't know what's inside of it. Open AI, although they're called open AI, has been completely closed about what data it's trained on. And the way these systems work, whether they succeed at a question, depends on how close that question is to the particulars of the training set. So it's this very unpredictable thing. I like to call it a bull in a china shop. It's powerful, but it's also reckless, and it's almost impossible to control.
0: You know, in all of those cases, the chatbot basically gave an answer. It didn't say, I don't know, or this this sounds like a silly question. It gave a confident answer, even if the answer is nonsensical. And it gives you a little window into how these things are working. I mean, what else does it tell you about how these models operate? Um, why is it getting these things wrong?
1: Well, the reality is it doesn't have a mind that is thinking about objects and entities in the world and the relations between them. It just sort of looks like that because it's mimicking this vast array of text. All it really knows is the relations between sequences of words. That's really all it knows. So it doesn't know what a cow is or what a chemist is or a physicist or if it's talking about their publication, doesn't know what a publication is. It doesn't know any of that stuff. It's just looking at the statistics in a very complicated way. But let me give you my favorite example of an error, which I think is really illustrative. One of these systems called Galactica, which preceded chat GPT by a few weeks was given the words Elon Musk and car crash and it invented a whole story it said on March let's say 12th of 2018 Elon Musk died in a fatal car collision while driving a Tesla and of course he didn't actually die in 2018 and is really interesting example for a bunch of reasons one is There's nothing in the database that actually supports Elon Musk having died in 2018. Another is you could just go out to Wikipedia and you figure out he's still alive. Another is like we're not talking about Gary Marcus that like a few people have heard of. We're talking about Elon Musk who's like the most famous person on the planet. So any source of data is going to have stuff about him, practically any source. So there's a vast amount of data in the training set. So people think about these things as if they were reasoning like human beings are. But a human being, if they hear Elon Musk died in a car crash, would be like, wow, like how did that happen? The whole world has changed. You know, the richest person in the world, I can't believe it. And like they would analyze it. They would look for other references. Is this true? Is it a rumor? The system doesn't do any of that. It's just statistically speaking, a bunch of white guys in California happened to own Teslas. He gets assimilated. The words get assimilated into that category. And one of them actually did die in a Tesla crash in 2018. And so it's just confusing – these words together. It doesn't actually know who Elon Musk is. It doesn't know what a car crash is. It just knows that this set of words is sometimes followed by this other set of words. That's all they're doing.
0: I feel like you, you've preempted my next question, which is that how will these systems become more trustworthy? Is it just a case of more data? From what you're saying, perhaps not.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a big fantasy out there, that more data will solve this. And I've, I've been arguing against this fantasy for a long time. In and 22, I infuriated much of the field by writing a paper called Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall and there started to be like on Twitter a whole culture of people making memes, ridiculing me, including Sam Altman, who's the CEO of of OpenAI. But the things that I said in that paper were adding more data was not going to change anything in terms of truthfulness, reliability, et cetera. And point of fact, it hasn't. And even Altman has come around in December of 2022. He acknowledged this himself, that these systems still are unreliable and not truthful. And we can all see for ourselves if we play with GPT-4. And in fact, at Christmas, I put out a set of seven predictions about GPT-4 that boiled down to adding more data is not fundamentally going to change these things. It's not going to change the fact that they can't reason about physics. They can't reason about psychology and people. Um, It's not going to change the fact that they hallucinate. It's not going to even allow the system to be such a general intelligence that it can play chess, even though it's going to be probably exposed to millions of games. Well, here we are a couple of months later. All of those predictions were correct. Our
0: colleague here at The Economist, Ludwig Ziegler, who writes about AI and we heard from on this podcast, is now saying that the introduction of large language models of various types, is now a race between big tech companies. You know, Microsoft, Google, everyone wants one of these, has one of these, and then they're racing to get onto the market. Is that a good thing?
1: It's probably a terrible thing, but it's also more complicated than that. You don't necessarily need, depending on what your purposes are, to have the largest language model. Like, biggest is better in some sense, but it's not necessarily critical. So let's say that you want to make misinformation. You want to put out a whole bunch of things about how COVID vaccines kill people. Well, you can take a large language model that you can find on the dark web that's already pre-trained, for a few hundred dollars, you can retrain it, and then you have something that's automatically going to generate misinformation at a scale that humanity has never seen before. Now, that's one part of it. Now, another part of it is, yes, there is a brutal grudge match to the death over web search. So, you know, Google has crushed Microsoft over that for years. You know, Bing barely was on the radar. And they have made what seems to me to be a Hail Mary pass. You type in a query and get a paragraph back. But what if somebody types in a medical query and it says you should take this drug? And in fact, it was contraindicated for that patient, but the system didn't even think to ask for that information. Okay,
0: so just on the issue of search then, that seems to be where people, at least for now, think the money might be coming from in the first generation of these uh, large language models. Is there anything that you think that people building this technology could be doing to mitigate some of the negative consequences that we already know are going to come, misinformation, just hallucinations, all these things?
1: I mean, some of it's for companies to do and some of it's for governments to do, and I don't think we know yet enough. I think it's for governments to impose penalties for people making uh, harmful misinformation at scale. Now, in my country, the United States, that doesn't go over smoothly, right? We have a very strong notion of freedom of expression and free speech, so nobody really wants to regulate it. But I think we have to recognize that if somebody attacks the public with misinformation. At wholesale scale, so we're talking like millions of pieces of misinformation a day or billions, which is now going to be possible. That's a different thing than you posting one tweet where you kind of mislead people. So you know, nobody wants to send anybody for jail for posting a single misleading tweet. But if somebody is doing this at an industrial scale, billions of you know, tweets or Facebook posts a day or, or making a fake edition of, of some major newspaper and trying to fool you, I think that that's a crime that we might want to consider if, if, if there's harm and volume. So that's an example of a legislative thing that we might want to impose. We may need new enforcement operations to even look to see. Right now, one of the things that scares me the most and several things scare me, I must say, is that we don't even have a way of tracking misinformation. We don't have a systematic index of how much of it is made by large language models. So I anticipate that this problem is going to get very bad, but I don't have a measure right now to say... You know, it's like the boiling frog thing. Like, I don't know how bad it is and how bad it's going to be next week. Can I just
0: widen the lens a little bit? In the last few years, everyone in the tech world has been obsessed by machine learning, upon which large language models are based. So machine learning, of course, is what's fueled the recent boom in the last decade of in AI. Could you just step back a bit and help us to understand where machine learning, large language models fit into this larger landscape of what machine intelligence is and the directions it takes us towards that ultimate goal of artificial general intelligence.
1: Sure. So in my book, Rebooting AI, we have a very crude Venn diagram that I think captures some of this, where we show that deep learning, which is what underlies large language models, is a subset of machine learning. There's lots of things in machine learning, many of which are out of fashion. So the problem with deep learning is it requires a vast amount of data. There's some problems you can't get that amount of data, and it turns out there are other techniques that are available. So machine learning just means taking data and trying to get the machine to figure out for itself what you need to do with that. And that is a part of the discipline of artificial intelligence. Deep learning is a part of the discipline of machine learning, but it's not the only part. And then artificial intelligence has other things like planning and reasoning and so forth, most of which people are kind of shortcutting right now with the large language models, but I think in the end can't.
0: Because these things don't do the planning or reasoning, as you just They don't, really.
1: And so, you know, if you set them up in a planning problem, they're not going to work very well. If you have GPT-4 play chess... It can't really plan well enough to play chess well. It can maybe play as well as an amateur who's not very good or something like that. But it's not like it's this general purpose intelligence. It appears as if it is, like as if it could do anything because you can type a lot of queries. And for a lot of those queries, there's something close enough to what's memorized that it gives you a passable answer. That doesn't mean it's actually planning about anything. It doesn't mean it's actually reasoning about anything. And where the chips are down and the answer matters, you need something more reliable than that. If you just want to use it for surrealist prose, which has always been its strength, It's great. It will always give you a fun and entertaining answer. Where do things like
0: planning, reasoning, where do they fit into that larger world of machine intelligence that will perhaps help the deep learning models get to a point where they're more useful and more able to do the things we want them to do?
1: I think there's a great unknown there. Here's an analogy. Many of your members of your audience will know Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he talks about system one and system two cognition. I think Danny would agree that that's actually a simplification, but everybody knows that simplification. And the idea is there's some things we do by reflex, and there's some things that we do in a more deliberate way. So the brain has many, many different mechanisms. And cognition is not just one thing, but many we have the cognition that we might use if I tell you a story and you want to imagine the characters and there's a different kind of cognition when I'm explaining a Venn diagram and so forth. We actually have a real serious – I would call it an orchestration problem. So even if we can get more of the parts to work, there's something that humans do that's amazing, which is orchestrating all of the pieces in our heads to usually get done what needs to be done. I mean let's say I bring you to a Hollywood movie, right? And you watch and the, this person turns out to be a bad guy. Everybody in the audience understands, Okay, I thought they were working on, you know, for the government, but they're actually a mole for the evil. Everybody recruits the right piece of their brain in order to interpret that. The large language models don't really do this at all. They have one mechanism that they're throwing after every problem, which is basically a mechanism about find matching text and and run with that. But that's not enough for the real world of cognition when you move outside of this domain and need reliability and so forth. What you really need is to be able to say like I have these planning mechanisms. I have this database in my head, this other database. I'm going to integrate them right now for this particular thing. And it's that integration between all your senses and all your different cognitive faculties that I think humans are way ahead of machines right now. This is the problem that needs to be solved is the problem of integration, of putting all of these pieces together, the planners, the reasoners, etc. And then large language models came and it kind of swept everything off the table. And my view is it's been a detour that even though these things are super cool and there's certainly some commercial applications for them, it's not really solving the problem of having a general intelligence that can take on some new problem and find a reliable solution to that.
0: So Gary, can you just put deep learning and large language models into context for me. It's just one of the artificial intelligence technologies that you need to get to that bigger project of artificial general intelligence, this uh, idea that the something that can reason and plan and do all these things that we want computers to be able to do. Uh, large language models can't do it by, its, by themselves. What other things do we need? I mean, computer scientists also talk about technologies like symbolic learning. How important is
1: that? I would use the term, I think, symbol manipulation rather than symbolic learning. Symbolic learning is maybe what I want and we don't have, um, just to be clear about it. So, so symbolic AI or classical AI is about using symbols that stand for things in the way that we use in algebra and computer programming. And so classical computer programming is built entirely on functions. Um, there are even languages we call functional programming languages so that make that even more explicit. Um, but it's there in all of them. In neural networks, you don't have that. And the argument that I've been making for 30 years, um, initially with my mentor, Steven Pinker, and then I kind of took the ball and ran with it, is that that has to be part of the answer. It doesn't have to be the whole answer. There's room for neural networks, which are what we called then pattern associators. It's still a good name for them. Um, large language models are basically pattern associators. So the argument that we made is pattern associators have a place, but so does manipulating these symbols. The problem with the symbolic approach has been that it's mostly been hand-wired and there are too many things in this world to hand-wire all of them. So you don't want to hand-wire a rule for everything. I want to be able to reason in some general way. And having all the rules that we might need seems challenging for anybody to code by hand. So if we had a way to learn those things from data so we could take the kind of data sensitivity of the neural networks But the power with abstractions that the rule-based approach has, the symbolic-based approach has, we would really be doing something. Like I think this is at least part of the grand challenge in making AI better.
0: The reason that deep learning seems to have become so popular in the last few years is simply because it requires, as you say, huge amounts of data, and huge amounts of data have become available from the internet, and and computing power is cheaper, and so it it supercharged that entire version of of machine learning and is now in fashion, as you say.
1: It's not just that data was available. It's that these big companies had a special resource that nobody else had, which was big data, and they wanted to run with that, and that shaped, I think, where AI is right now. Right now. Now, here's the interesting thing to go directly to your question. I think that the forcing function has finally come. Even a few months ago, I felt like the whole field was so invested in this idea of scaling is everything, that if we have more data, we will solve intelligence. And what I think is going to change that is the desire to make chat-based search work. So you cannot make chat-based search work just by training larger and larger language models. A couple of reasons for that. One is that the large language models cost so much money to retrain that you can't do it every day. You absolutely just can't do that. You know, If it takes you three months to retrain a model, you're not going to be doing them all day long. And a lot of what people search for is recent stuff. And so a pure large language model is a non-starter for chat search. You just can't do it and make it work well. And so to make that work, I think it's going to push us towards AI that I do think is actually more valuable. I think it's a long and difficult road, but it's it's the first time I've seen people concentrate on a problem that I think will actually force us in the right direction. The desire to make chat search work, the fact that it's not fresh, you might say, and then the fact that it makes so many errors, that it hallucinates so much, is motivation for people to do better.
0: That's interesting. So, in one sense, large language models are nowhere near the sort of types of artificial intelligence that you know we're going to we, we want, but to make them specifically better we might get to some of the research that you're talking about which will get to the sort of better types of artificial intelligence which is the roots towards um, better machine intelligence better Artificial General Intelligence. So I guess there's a confusing question in here, which is that our large language models, are they going to be important in the history of AI? If we're looking many decades hence, once we have our AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, are they going to be important on that road? Or are they just a sort of helping function along the way?
1: They're a detour. I think when people write the history of AI 15 years from now, they'll say large language models were really cool. They exposed people to what AI could really do didn't really work. It had a lot of problems, you know, all the hallucinations and stuff like that. It was also very expensive to train, required a lot of data. It was a pain in the ass to work with. And they'll say in 2025, people figured out a better way to do this or something like that. And, you know, those things disappeared. They were like a dress rehearsal for real AI. They weren't the thing that actually won that race, but they certainly got people interested and motivated and got a lot of people to think about the questions. turns out the answer that they had in the early 2020s was not the right answer.
0: I'm curious how you think we're going to get to the the better version, the real versions of AI that you've been hinting at.
1: I, I don't know for sure. I think there are different forces that might lead us there. I think the most obvious one is people trying to make chat search work. Desire to win that market is going to motivate things a lot. There are other ways you could get there. For example, I've argued for a CERN for AI and CERN for AI would not be a commercial venture as much as like a government multilateral, multinational effort for example to build AI that could advance medicine. That might not immediately pay off in the same economic way as advertising which turns out the world revolves around it. But a coordinated effort around that could really lead to advances in AI. So you could imagine government says, look, we don't want the big corporates to own AI. We're going to try to advance AI in our own path, and we're going to do it where it has benefit for humanity rather than just selling more ads. That could be a different kind of forcing function that might get us to real advances in AI that was less corporate.
0: So so a CERN for AI is the dream. Um, Wasn't OpenAI meant to be a kind of a private CERN for AI? (laughs) It didn't really go in that direction.
1: So I posted this on Twitter. It turns out to be the most popular thing I think that I've ever posted on Twitter. I wrote six words and then I have a screenshot. My six words were, speaking of bullshit, anyone remember this? And then I have a screenshot of OpenAI's initial announcement in 2015. And they say, introducing OpenAI. OpenAI is a nonprofit artificial intelligence research company. Our goal is to advance digital intelligence in a way that is most likely to benefit humanity as a whole, unconstrained by a need to generate financial return. Since our research is free from financial obligations, we can better focus on positive human impact. Pretty much every word of that is now out the window. That didn't turn out well, did it? That did not turn out well. So they actually, legally speaking, still have a non-profit on top of the company. But for practical purposes, they're working as a subsidiary for Microsoft. They're not working on problems like medical discovery. They're working on problems like how to write text faster, possibly for the purposes of optimizing somebody's search engine.
0: Okay, well, a real CERN for AI is something that we can definitely get behind on this show. Uh, Gary, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. Our thanks to Maria Lea-Carter, Gary Marcus and The Economist's Ludwig Ziegler. This week's Babbage was produced by Jason Hoskin and Rory Galloway, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rothast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.